Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. In the darkest recesses of the human psyche lies an insatiable curiosity for the bizarre and the unexplained, a desire to peer behind the veil of the ordinary and uncover the secrets that hide just beneath the surface. These strange and confounding cases ignite the imagination and send shivers down the spine as we struggle to comprehend the sinister forces within our seemingly familiar world. And those are the cases we dive into here on Foul Play Crime Series. And while we usually cover some old unsolved cases, today we're going to discuss a fairly recent case that has completely vexed true crime fans and detectives alike. This is the story of Phoebe Hanschuk, a 24-year-old Australian girl who found herself in a strange, strange situation. Born on May 9, 1986, in the bustling city of Melbourne, Australia, Phoebe Hanschuk was enchanted by the wonders of nature from a young age. The eldest of three children, Phoebe grew up in the warm embrace of a contented family in Richmond suburbs with their father, Lynn Hanschuk. However, at the age of 15, Hanschuk's life took a turn as she began to consume alcohol and dabble in drugs. During this tumultuous period, she left her family to live with an ex-convict and his children for two months. Upon her return, she was prescribed antidepressants and soon embarked on a relationship with the local teacher, twice her age. At 23, Hansjuk found employment as a receptionist at Lindley Godfrey's Hair Salon in South Yara. It was there that she encountered the dashing 39-year-old Anthony Hample, one of the salon regulars. Anthony was different. He was an event promoter with a good background. His father, George Hample, served as a Supreme Court judge, while his stepmother, Felicity Hample, was a county court judge. Contrary to her boss, Lindley Godfrey's expectations that their love affair would be short-lived, Hansjuk and Hample actually entered a committed relationship that lasted five months, culminating in her moving into his apartment in Balenci in October of 2009. All seemed well on the surface, but in reality, Phoebe's condition seemed to get worse. Her drinking spiraled out of control, and she confided in her psychiatrist, Joanna Young, that Hample had been verbally abusive. In the six weeks leading up to her demise, she had apparently left him on four separate occasions, 
only to be persuaded to return each time. On December 2, 2010, the fateful day of her death, Hansjuk and her father had arrived to meet Hampel for dinner. Prior to their appointment, she spent time at the apartment she shared with Hampel before leaving the place at 11.44 a.m. with their dog after the fire alarm rang. A few minutes later, once the matter was resolved, she was found returning to her apartment on the 12th floor. From this point on, only Hampel's account could shed light on what happened next. According to Hampel, he had returned home shortly after 6 p.m. to find broken glass, blood splattered across the keyboard and computer, and no sign of Hansjuk. Only her purse, wallet, and keys remained on the kitchen counter, while the floor was littered with broken glass and blood spatters. Investigators also discovered two used wine glasses on the table, which were oddly never examined for fingerprints. Where could she have gone? There was no CCTV footage of her leaving the building, so she still had to be inside. By the time Hanjux's lifeless body was found in a pool of blood beside a garbage bin on the ground floor, she had been dead for some time. An autopsy revealed a blood alcohol level of 0.16, three times the legal limit, and traces of one or two still-knocked sleeping pills, a prescription sedative also known as Zolpidem. The first theory to come to mind was this. Phoebe had a bit too much alcohol and, in her days, entered the narrow trash chute and fell. The police determined that it happened somewhere between 12.03 and 7 p.m. that day, and the chute could have certainly fit a person her size. But this was only the beginning. After the police examined the body, they realized that Phoebe had initially survived the harrowing plunge, only to succumb to her injuries in the darkness as she desperately attempted to crawl out of the trash bin. Notably, her arms displayed bruises that seemed inconsistent with a vertical fall. She didn't fall as if she had entered the chute voluntarily. Despite these puzzling details, authorities still concluded that she had either sleepwalked into the chute or was too drunk to know what she was doing. Given her industry, this would have been an easy explanation to accept. But many didn't. Among the skeptics was Hanjux's own grandfather, Lorne Campbell, a retired police detective who received the horrifying news via a phone call at 10 p.m. on the day her body was discovered. When he arrived and saw the scene laid out before him, he came to one singular conclusion. It was a murder. Inexplicably, after five days, Homicide detectives left behind crucial evidence, including CCTV footage and all of Hanjux's devices, before ruling out foul play. 
They theorized that Hanjux had sliced her hand and, in an attempt to dispose of the shattered glass, had climbed into the chute. Campbell couldn't believe this conclusion and stated that the investigators had overlooked critical clues, like the wine glasses and the large shoe prints leading away from the apartment. Determined to prove his point, he even constructed a replica of the chute and enlisted Hanjux's friends to attempt the climb. Even when sober and physically fit, they found the task extraordinarily challenging. Retired Victoria Police Detective Roland Legg concurred, explaining the difficulties posed by the chute's design and how Hanjux's impaired state would have made the climb even more arduous. Even if she was drunk, there was no way she could have done it, unless there was someone to help. In 2013, following a successful fundraiser campaign by Hanjux's mother to raise $50,000 for the cause, a full inquest into her death was launched. Anthony Hample's attorney denied any suggestion of murder, while a coroner by the name of Peter White testified that Hansjex had definitely sleepwalked into the chute of her own accord. Peter White's conclusion regarding Phoebe's tragic demise were shrouded in conjecture and could not be confirmed by the existing evidence. And yet it was enough to release Hample on December 10, 2014. Peter's finding that no other individual played a part in her death not only absolved Anthony Hample, but also precluded anyone else's involvement in the fatality. Moreover, the coroner found that Phoebe, despite her inebriated state and the debilitating consequences of combining alcohol and stillnox, not only managed to climb into the chute unassisted, but also climbed down, or at least slowed her fall, by applying a lateral force to the 530 millimeter diameter vertical shaft. Aside from the incredible physical challenge this method of descent presents, photographs reveal minimal dirt on Phoebe's body and clothing, while testimony indicates that the chute's interior was filthy. It is also worth noting that the level of contact suggested by the coroner would have left Phoebe's hands clothes and skin considerably dirtier, especially her back. The clothes she was wearing would have, at some point, ridden up as she slid down the chute. Upon reviewing the pathologist's report, one aspect stands out. The report lists her height as approximately 166 centimeters. In reality, she stood 175 centimeters tall. Either the post-mortem measurement was inaccurate, or her body had been compressed and shortened due to the impact of her fall. The pathologist might have struggled to obtain an accurate height measure because of the fractures in both of her legs and the near severance of her right foot, which remained attached only by a tendon. The coroner dismissed the family's account of Phoebe's height and accepted the pathologist's measurements of 166 centimeters as her actual height. 
This claim, of course, didn't make sense. Because if 166 centimeters were her real height, it would mean her body had not been compressed by the fall, as they claimed it did. The coroner primarily based his assumption that she did not free fall on the lack of severe trauma to her internal organs. Phoebe landed in a 45-degree angled deflector shaft and slid into a horizontal compaction chamber. The 45-degree angle would have substantially reduced the force of her fall. As half of a right angle, 45 degrees might have the impact force compared to falling on a horizontal surface. So if this were the case, the force of the 30-meter fall would equate to perhaps that of a 15-meter fall onto a flat surface. Setting aside the near severance of Phoebe's right foot by the compactor blade, she also sustained other significant injuries consistent with such a fall, including a fractured upper left femur and extensive bruising to her buttocks. The inexplicable injuries on Phoebe's body, including the circular and oval bruises on her right upper arm, consistent with grip marks, and bruising on her left wrist and neck remain a mystery. Although these injuries may have other explanations, mere conjecture hardly counts as evidence. The reality was, there was no reason to rule out the possibility of a physical assault. The pathologist, Dr. Lynch, stated in his autopsy report, I cannot eliminate the possibility of other parties being involved. The coroner proposed his own outlandish theory to Dr. Lynch, saying, I am wondering if it is appropriate to infer that this was something of a controlled fall, where she was able to reduce the momentum of her fall by using her hands, arms, and feet to apply force against the walls of the chute to control the fall. Coroner White was suggesting that Phoebe climbed down the chute and therefore had control over her fall. To that, Lynch responded that he could not confidently exclude the involvement of other parties, casting further doubt on White and his team. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Another indication of potential third-party involvement came from a witness's observations. A tenant in Phoebe's apartment complex reported seeing a person, seemingly a tradesman, working on the 20th floor, entering the elevator from the underground parking area in the afternoon. According to the tenant, the tradesman didn't use a swipe card like other residents of the building, but pressed a button on the 12th floor, and the 12th floor light lit up. This suggests that someone on the 12th floor buzzed the man in. The tenant left the elevator on the 6th floor 
though she didn't see where the tradesman exited. Under cross-examination, she became less certain about whether the twelfth-floor light had indeed turned on. Following media attention, the tradesman was identified and questioned by police. He denied going to the twelfth floor, and his denial was accepted due to a lack of conflicting electronic records of anyone being buzzed up to that floor. Plus, the recording system for buzz-ups was proven to be unreliable, and during the fire alarm that rang out at 11.44 a.m., the system was deactivated entirely. This flaw in the recording system allowed anyone to access any part of the building undetected during the 20-minute period when the fire alarm had deactivated the buzz-up system. But as the case went on, White continued to add details that confused rather than clarified anything. For example, Coroner White added that Phoebe broke a drinking glass in the apartment before falling down the chute, which was a dig at her drinking habits, which he proposed could often result in destroyed items. His statement was, quote, At some stage, she dropped and broke a glass. At a later point, she attempted to clean up the glass fragments and may have placed them into a plastic trash bag while cutting herself in the process. But that was hardly a justification. The broken glass found in the apartment could have been a result of an altercation, a violent reaction, or an external force. The police noticed an unexamined stained area on the wall, leaving even more questions unanswered. The attending police, including Detective Senior Constable Howells, observed a trail of dirt marks on the 12th floor hallway, which appeared to have been left by someone, either tall or running. But that's where it ended. No further examination was conducted, and the marks were never photographed, sampled, or measured to determine their significance. Although there was broken glass on the floor, there was no evidence that Phoebe had cleaned it up and placed the fragments in a plastic trash bag. The coroner's conclusion that she had cut herself on the glass was based on the presence of blood on a computer mouse, mouse pad, and door trim, which was DNA tested and shown to be Phoebe's. Funny enough, there was no blood on the broken glass in the apartment. Phoebe's blood was found in droplets on the floor of the 12th floor garbage room. But the coroner's description of the blood as a small portion is definitely misleading. He says, quote, At some later point, shoeless and without her bag and keys, she left the apartment and went to the refuse room on the same floor, where a small portion of blood from her earlier cut was subsequently found she is likely to have put a bag of garbage into the chute at this time. There is, of course, no evidence to support this claim either. But that didn't stop even more wild speculation. The medical examiner also stated that Phoebe had been drinking vodka from a glass. There was no concrete evidence to back this up, 
aside from Anthony Hampel's own testimony, that he had detected the scent of vodka in a glass on the kitchen counter. But if you remember, the police found two wine glasses on the kitchen counter, which Anthony didn't mention. Plus, given that vodka is nearly odorless, this assumption is questionable. Neither glass on the counter nor the one found shattered was linked to Phoebe through fingerprints. No fragments of broken glass were discovered in the kitchen trash bin or the one garbage bag retrieved from the wheelie bin where she landed in the ground-level waste room. That plastic bag couldn't be definitively traced to Anthony's residence. Three additional trash bins within the apartment were not inspected or searched, so there's no evidence to back up the medical examiner's assumption that Phoebe brought a garbage bag to the waste room and placed it in the hatch. The presence of two glasses raised its own set of questions. The most obvious being, was someone else drinking with Phoebe? As the investigation into Phoebe Hanjux's death continues, it becomes increasingly clear that something isn't quite right. The medical examiner and coroner seem fixated on Phoebe's drinking problem. But why? Why were there so many inconsistencies and unexplained aspects of the case? What were they trying to hide? Or whom were they trying to protect? And what about those mysterious shoe prints and the unexplained wine glasses? Was someone else there with Phoebe that day? Someone who might hold the key to this baffling case. Join me on the next episode as we dig deeper into the murky waters of Phoebe Hanjux's mysterious demise. We'll continue to unravel the inconsistencies, expose the questionable conclusions, and ask the hard-hitting questions that demand answers. I'll see you then.